Welcome to You Wear It Well. Hi, I'm your host, Jeff Heiserman, physical therapist and founder and CEO of Spectrum Ergonomics and Occupational Health Services. We're at the intersection of fashion and technology, otherwise known as wearables. We look at the people, products, and research that make up this exciting world of wearables. Are you a fashion designer, electrical engineer, or someone with the dream of designing a wearable? Apply for membership to my LinkedIn group page, Biotech Fashion, and join in the discussion. to the podcast, and um, I'd like to introduce a very special guest to today's podcast, Dr. Farzan Sasangahar, and he's going to talk a little bit about his background um, in, into wearables, and he's also going to talk about some research that he and his colleagues recently published that I found very fascinating, which um, you've heard on some of my, on one of my previous podcasts. So without any further delay, Farzan, the floor is yours. Yes, thank you so much for inviting me to your podcast. I'm, I'm a fan of your podcast. I think it's very interesting. Um, I'm, a, uh, I'm an assistant professor uh, of industrial and systems engineering at Texas A&M University. Uh, I'm also wearing a practitioner hat. Um, I'm the division chief for health systems engineering at Houston Methodist Hospital and also a faculty uh, at Houston Methodist Research Institute. Uh, my undergraduate education is mostly in computer science and information technology. also have a degree in architecture, but uh, most of my graduate background is in human factors engineering and, and engineering systems, systems engineering. Um, now, how did I become interested in variables? That's a, that's a very interesting story. I was, I was always interested in technology uh, when I was a graduate student, but when I started my research, on mental health, um, I became really interested in variables. When I started at TAMU, um, I was pulled into a research meeting with faculty from public health, uh, College of Engineering and the, and the VA. Uh, we discussed gaps in PTSD care, post-traumatic stress disorder for veterans in that meeting. Now at the time, um, there was this very large number of suicides a day related to PTSD among our combat veterans. Uh, so it really motivated me to go back to my office, do some research, um, and I immediately became attracted to this area. Um, I knew I could, I could use my background in human factors engineering to do something about it. Now. The problem is really interesting. The gold standard when it comes to mental health diagnosis and assessment is mostly self-reported instruments. Uh, there are many examples for anxiety is G87, for depression is PHQ-9. Um, and as we know in human factors, these self-reported metrics have some major limitations. Um, you know, recall bias, reliability, so on and so forth. Uh, for example, for post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, PCL5 or PTSD checklist, five item questionnaire is the gold standard for the diagnosis of PTSD patients. But the problem with PTSD patients uh, is, you know, 
because of the very nature of this issue, uh, they suffer from emotional numbness. And you basically, you know, can't rely enough on those self-reported metrics, especially if you keep repeating them, especially if they do it on their own in between therapeutic sessions. Uh, so in case of PTSD, we found that the real problem is the gap for continuous monitoring of these patients in between therapeutic sessions when they're outside a care facility, when they're on their own. Um, so I got really interested in investigating if variable technologies, if variable physiological and biometric sensors particularly, uh, can be used to monitor mental health issues and mental health states. Uh, remotely and continuously. So that's how I got interested in variables. Uh, now, the research itself uh, delved into designing and developing a technology that involves uh, off-the-shelf variable sensors, such as those available on smartwatches and smartphones. Um, our lab has studied uh, stress and in particular PTSD through multiple studies with hundreds of combat veterans and students and nurses, those who usually suffer from stress syndrome, uh, syndromes. And uh, through these naturalistic studies, uh, we were able to develop a machine learning tool that can detect periods of high stress and anxiety with pretty good accuracy. Uh, the technology provides two types of assessment. Uh, first, um, what I call momentary assessment or momentary monitoring type of capability, which is an always-on 24-7 continuous monitoring using this array of sensors available in, in our off-the-shelf products to detect periods of high stress and anxiety in real time. The goal is to engage the user in simple therapeutic activities such as breathing exercises or relaxation media, um, then and if we can detect something meaningful using these sensors. In our studies with college students, uh, we also connected these tools to our mental health infrastructure to facilitate access to counseling services, psychological services, and even telehealth clinics so they can see somebody right away or in a very short amount of time. Um, there's, there's an emphasis on providing education using these modules and digital coaching where users can learn about mental health disorders and effective ways to self-manage and several techniques to self-manage. Um, so that was the first type. The second type of monitoring in these technologies is called periodic assessment. And that's closer to gold standard. This is where users are reminded to complete those gold standard instruments. We're not throwing them in the garbage can. You know, they're very important. They're just not enough standalone. Uh, so we still use those gold standard instruments for periodic assessment, facilitated and enabled by these mobile health technologies. We do it for stress, anxiety, depression. And uh, then we combine that self-report information with more objective ways of assessing mental health, such as facial and voice sentiment analysis, to come up with some sort of assessment of mental health state through this um, triangulation of methods. So the, the key is to not rely on just one method, but use multiple methods, combination of subjective and objective methods to come up with a good sense of mental health state. 
Yeah, I think um, it's real good points that you brought up about that, because I know in the healthcare field, there's um, we don't have a lot of opportunities other than having patients fill out questionnaires, having patients, whether it's a, like you said, it's a special questionnaire, depending on what problem they have, or it's a general questionnaire. Um, we're always falling back on then having to interview the patient, you know, which is not a bad thing when we when we do their initial examination is that we are we're also looking at their history. We're asking some, some further questions about it. But it is hard to get that kind of data. Very, very hard, like you said, to get it if you're not actually sitting there in front of them asking them those questions. Um, that's what really struck me about the research that you just had recently published. Um, you and your, your cohorts actually, you won out and you, you got the, that data in the natural setting. So tell us a little bit about that. What, what led you and your, your, your cohorts there to say, let's get out of the laboratory setting and let's go out and be around people that actually have or potential to have PTSD and let's take a look at collecting data there. So what, what, what drove that idea to want to get out of the clinic, so to speak, and get out into the natural environment? Sure. So there are two main issues with those lab studies. Number one uh, is the ethical challenges of studying stress, anxiety, depression, these kind of mental health disorders in a lab setting. So studying these constructs in a lab setting may require inducing these conditions. So, may, you know, making people stressed or, you know, inducing high anxiety or depression, depressive moments so you can capture that ground truth. That has ethical challenges. Not only is it difficult, it has ethical challenges. So I think a much superior way of doing it is naturalistic studies where you can capture these events happening naturalistically. Uh, they're very difficult and time-consuming, though, to, to wait for those events to happen naturalistically, but that's definitely the, the, the most closer to objective reality, in my opinion. Uh, for you know, for scientific foundations in this area, the other issue um, um, is uh, when you delve into machine learning and artificial intelligence. Uh, those of you and your listeners who are interested or familiar with this domain, machine learning is 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 pretty much detecting patterns based on a set of training values. Uh, it, the machine is dumb and dutiful, right? It detects things you, you teach it, right? Unless you do unsupervised machine learning, which is a complete black box. Um, for a meaningful detection, you need ground truth. And the ground, collection of ground truth in the lab setting is very difficult. And it has ethical challenges, as I mentioned. So having access to that ground truth is key to make sure you have a meaningful machine learning. So through this naturalistic testing uh, with hundreds of patients, we've been able to collect that ground truth systematically to, to have a meaningful detection. Um, so for that reason, I think uh, these naturalistic studies, uh, even though there are not too many of them because they're very challenging to conduct, they're a way to go for the future of, you know, these sensor-based analytics and sensor-based AI and machine learning tools. When you talk about challenges, what were some of the specific challenges you and your, your cohorts faced in, in leaving the laboratory at the university and, and going to the two different locations that you did? 
Sure. Um, I think uh, we've been to more than two. We've been to six or seven different locations uh, for these naturalistic tests. We actually published some of these challenges uh, in a book chapter, in a book called The Patient Factor. Uh, it's a book edited by Rupa Valdez and uh, Rich Holden. Um, one major challenge uh, is using variables uh, on different populations like veterans. Uh, for example, for those veterans who have amputation, it's really difficult to use off-the-shelf products. It's, you, you may need more customized solutions. Um, then, you know, we have some really cool detection capabilities, but a major challenge is closing the loop with some digital therapeutic. I mean, once you can detect, what, what would you do with it and how effective those digital therapeutics would be? So we spend a significant amount of our research efforts in designing user-centered, persuasive digital therapeutics to provide momentary support when they need it in a timely manner. Uh, I think mobile health platforms are perfect for this challenge. Um, in our applications, we provide a range of tools, uh, ranging from reading exercises, focusing exercises, relaxation media, mindfulness, biofeedback, uh, advanced communication tools such as location sharing and community building, uh, and we're even working on uh, triaging chatbots, so intelligent AIs to start conversation. Um, a major part of closing this loop is to connect these users to professional help. Um, and there's a significant challenge right there, and that's trust. And it varies depending on the type of population. For example, for veterans, uh, veteran population generally don't trust providers. Uh, so they tend to trust peers more so than they trust providers. <clears throat> so the focus of interventions for that specific group should be more on community building. For college students, for example, there's an issue with utilizing services, even though there, there's, there's multiple services available to students um, because of the stigma associated to mental health. The, there's underutilization, generally speaking, of these resources. So the focus there will be more on enabling self-management and facilitating access and make it super easy for them to access these resources. So these are some of the challenges. And kind of a, a, a I would say a fun, fun kind of uh, question I want to pose to you. How was it? Was it kind of a novel thing for you and your cohorts to go out to these, these few different places or several places that you went to for the research? Was it kind of fun intermingling like that and, and talking about, hey, would you mind wearing these watches and, and, and explain, you know, explaining to people? And what were their reactions you know, to, like, you want to put this watch on me and what do you want to monitor? Or, you know, what were some of the reactions, both with your cohorts and yourself, interacting with these vets and their reactions to you and what you were going to do? Because I mentioned there were, it was probably some, there were probably some fun little moments as well as maybe some tense moments as well. Absolutely. I mean, and that's the beauty of the naturalistic studies and specifically ethnographic studies. When you become part of that team, you become part of that culture, you get to learn about them and uh, they get to trust you gradually. Trust is an issue from the beginning and, you know, that has to be built. Um, with veterans, you know, it took several studies for us to, to establish that trust and become part of that team. So they get to have fun with us and get to trust us with these tools. And, and once that trust established, uh, it's beautiful. 
you know, it's, it's way beyond the tool and the smartwatch and the technology. They get to talk with you about their issues. You have emotional moments talking about, you know, what they're dealing with in their daily lives and you become a peer. That's where they trust you and they start sharing way more than what you expect. So um, even though the center and focus of our studies was this smartwatch-based tool, the real value and the real data came from our conversation, casual conversations with these vets. And in our other studies, the same thing happens with nurses and college students too, where they get to share their concerns and they, they, they get to talk about uh, you know, the value of having some, somebody looking after them, something looking after them, whatever that is. They, they talk about this gap in care. They talk about you know, the expectations and needs for you know, this, this future generation of tools. It's, it's really beautiful being part of communities. And, you know, I think uh, us, the, the human factors researchers are very well trained to take part in these ethnographical studies. And, you know, I think we, we're trained to do that, to become part of that culture and, you know, integrate and adapt and, uh, you know, establish trust. But, um, yeah, and it leads to a lot of fun moments, too. It's not just emotional and sad moments. I mean, once, you know, you're a peer, once you're a brother, uh, quotation, uh, you know, around it, um, it, it's beautiful what, what you get to establish and, you know, some, some long lasting friendships. I still have vets texting myself and my students who participate in those studies when they have, you know, a PTSD arousal event, you know, so that, that friendship, that established partnership is way beyond just that study. You get to be part of them. You get to be a peer and uh, they genuinely care. And they get to know that very soon. Uh, they, they get to see your enthusiasm in the problem. And, you know, that, that's, that's a key component of that trust establishment. It sounds to me like you and uh, your cohorts will, uh, wouldn't mind going out and doing some more naturalistic data collection. It sounds like it's... I mean, obviously, it's, it's really the, the best way to go about getting that kind of data, uh, short of just sitting and observing. But you're actually, you know, that you mentioned about the, the relationships that you built through trust over time, where you can actually be, like you had said, quote, a brother. Um, I take it that you and your cohorts are interested in continuing to pursue this type of data collection, if, if, if at all possible. Is that something that, that you've all decided you would like to still continue in a trend? Um, is this something you want to you want to continue to follow these vets? Is is this is this a perspective type? Will this turn into a perspective study, possibly? Um, what what do you what are you folks thinking about? It really uh, is addictive. Um, we are moving forward with these studies, even though they're very challenging logistically and sometimes they're very expensive, and we may not have enough necessary resources to get them done. But we're so interested and enthusiastic about these that uh, we're looking forward to do more of these type of studies. Um, um, so, yes, um, I think we're planning to continue working on this product with these groups um, because there's so much enthusiasm around them. We get to see the, the most, the, the highest quality of data coming from people who are genuinely engaged and interested in these interventions. Now, you're naive, you know. Uh, just interested in that reimbursement payment kind of participant, you know? So these mm -hmm. folks are genuinely interested and they care about the success of these tools. And 
I think the, that continuity with participation uh, with those folks who are interested in your research is, is another key component uh, of, of having a successful intervention, making sure you have that participatory ergonomics, you have that participatory engagement with these folks, make them even um, have a little bit of ownership over these intervention and contribute to design. We keep acknowledging them in everything we publish. Uh, so yeah, we're looking forward to do more and more of these kind of naturalistic studies as um, as much as you know our, our, our dollars stretch, our research dollars. But uh, at the same time, we're looking for research funding opportunities to expand the scope of these kind of studies as well. I know there are not too many of these kind of studies out there. So we'd like to establish ourselves also as a um, as a go-to research team to do these kind of studies. Yeah, I would encourage you to do that. And that's, again, that's what drew me to, to want to, um, to make contact with you to be able to do this interview because um, the years that I've been reading research as a, as a clinician, uh, to see something like that was like, wow, uh, that's, it, it's pretty much, it's rare. And to see the success you have with this particular study uh, was it was, it was more than encouraging. It, it, like you said, it's beautiful. It's a wonderful thing to see that your subjects actually related to you. They, they realize you're here to help them. It's not just for you to get published, but it's the long-term goal is for them to be able to lead a better quality life, get the help that they need and try to understand what they're going through on a subject with, you know, PTSD, there's not a lot known about it. So when you can get out and, and engage your subjects, to get this kind of data to help them and to help us as society in general to be able to to be to be people that are understanding of what these folks are going through, uh, that I think is is fantastic. Are you going to? Is this an avenue that you you yourself and your uh, or and your cohorts want to go down more PTSD? Are you, are you still looking to take a look at that particular? Um, I don't want to call it a syndrome, but a, a particular, um, you know, area of, of um, difficulties that people are having. Uh, with yeah, I think PTSD is going to be um, one area we, we're going to focus on and build more expertise in. But in general, mental health. Uh, PTSD is a certain kind of anxiety and, and stress disorder. Um, the type of feedback and ground truth we collected from veterans was, I think, much more generalizable than just PTSD, because I think what happened was they they kept reporting to us when they had general anxiety and stress that included some of those really you know high end of spectrum of PTSD hyperarousal, which sometimes leads to uh, even blackout. So we had this really wide range of ground truth for overall you know, general anxiety and PTSD. So we use that generalizability to start detecting general anxiety and stress. So we looked at applications to college student mental health issues, um, you know, other special populations like nurses who are suffering from burnout, especially now during the COVID pandemic. Um, so the, the focus suddenly changed from just PTSD to general mental health disorders. And being able to detect uh, stress, anxiety, depression as they present themselves in physiological reactions and biometric values. To be able to first detect these uh, correlates 
physiological correlates of mental health disorders, and then use uh, user-centered design and development methods to close the loop. Just-in-time interventions to close the loop with some digital therapeutics, community building, and connecting them to professional care. Fantastic. Certainly well worth putting uh, the time and, and the money in that particular direction. Um, the last question I have for you, and, and um, I do it with all my guests that I have on, where do you see the wearables market, at least the sector that you're in, where do you see that in five years? So I think on the uh, detection side, we're going to see a lot more advances in sensor capabilities, uh, in increased sensitivity, you know, higher bandwidth, so on and so forth, high sampling rate, uh, even on things like smartwatches, off-the-shelf products, getting much closer to, you know, higher grade sensors. Machine learning is booming, so there's definitely going to be a lot more interesting development uh, that would eventually enhance the, the accuracy of these detections. On the digital therapeutic side, uh, I think the mobile health and mobile platform is going to continue to play a key role for providing care uh, in a discrete, non-intrusive manner. Again, discreteness is a key variable here. In every study we did for mental health, people mentioned they don't like to bear something that shouts out, you know, mental health, Any, anything that's kind of a bulky, bold, new thing. They, they want it to be discreet and non-intrusive. So I think uh, we need more focus on user-centered and participatory, participatory design methods to also improve the interaction experiences. Uh, detection alone may not get us uh, you know, enough. Uh, how we close that loop is even more critical to make sure these tools are used substantially uh, and in a sustainable manner for a long period of time. One area that I think will play a key role would be persuasive design. Uh, we need to find a way to make these tools a part of patients' lives so they want it in their lives, something like Instagram or Facebook or social media. What qualities those uh, technologies hold that keeps them in people's lives addictively? So those persuasive design methods are going to be key moving forward to design these effective tools. I agree 100%. If, if it's not something that they feel comfortable with um, putting on their body, whether it's a watch or a shirt uh, that integrates into their life where it doesn't, like you said, shout out that, you know, I have a problem. Yeah, they're, that's what's going to be big. And I think that's where I'm seeing the wearables market right now is I see that there's there's a big gap between a wearable and fashion and um, definitely bringing more of that together where it looks good. People feel comfortable wearing it. It says something you know, good about them. They look smart. They look nice in that. All the while, it's something that's measuring their heart rate or it's measuring their blood pressure. Where or their blood sugar, you know, whatever it might be, it's comfortable, it's unobtrusive, uh, it might even look nice. You know, maybe they may even get a compliment on how nice that shirt looks, and they say to themselves, "Well, little do you know, it's monitoring my blood glucose all day long." And I think that's really a, the the beauty of wearables, and, and I think melding the fashion with the the technology, I think is really is going to really make this entire sector of wearables, like designers say, you know, it's going to pop. And I think that that's, you know, to, the fact that you're looking at that from your side, the human factors engineering side, 
understanding that we need it to be unobtrusive, we need it to look good, we need it to be comfortable, all of those things, I think is really, it's a wonderful awareness. And and I, I, I praise you and your team for that, because that's something we can easily get caught up in in our own little little sector of wearables. We can get caught up in what we're doing. We don't really acknowledge because we're so busy, you know, what other aspects could improve what we're doing that we don't know how to do, but we need to interact with other disciplines. That whole interdisciplinary thing, I think, is is starting to work its way through wearables. And I think that's it's important that everybody takes a look at that, that, um, you know, that doesn't have to be our strength. We just find other people that we can collaborate with to, to form a particular product that it's going to be successful and help people. Absolutely. I think, um, I mean, what you mentioned about fashionability and all those things, I think that's, that's very true, especially for the younger population. But, uh, you know, for the older population, we're going to have an aging United States soon. And they might not care as much about fashionability. They, they just like to age in place. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that idea of persuasion becomes even more important. I think, uh, you know, 40, 50 years ago, engineering these products was all about functionality. Then mm-hmm. we learned about usability. You know, that's, you know, things need to be usable. They need to be bearable. But I think even usability is a term of past. Now we need something on top of it. The fact that something's functional and usable is not enough anymore. It has to be persuasive. Um, so I think that's the next challenge: how to how to make these technologies more persuasive. Yeah, because obviously, when it comes down to to it, you know, the the person needs to put it on. You know, what's going to motivate them to put it on? Exactly. To wear, to wear that. Well, Doctor Sasangahar, I, I want to thank you very much for for joining us on this podcast. Um, I really appreciate the research that you've done that I've, I've discussed in a previous podcast. Um, but I also appreciate where, you, where you're going with it, because I think you've hit some real key points that we need to continue to move forward, not to rest on our laurels, but what else can we continue to do, like you said, to make it more persuasive, but also to continue the conversation with our subjects and, and moving that forward. And how can we better enhance what what they need and what their needs are in addition to how can we enhance the rest of the the community that they need around them, whether they be psychologists or psychiatrists or family practice doctors or, you know, whatever it might be, social networks to understand what they're going through and how we can better serve them. Because really the wearables market is about serving people and and improving quality of life for people. So again, I want to say thank you. Congratulations on the work that you've done. Uh, it's fantastic. And I'm glad to hear that you're moving forward in that particular direction. And um, I would like to also come back with you in about a year again and see what you're working on then and what direction uh, or how far in that particular direction you're going, because um, it's an exciting field that you're in. And um, it, it's a part of wearables that we may not always think about, but it, it's a part that brings a wearable to a person because there's things that we need to data we need to capture and what kind of data do we need to capture? So I think it's a really nice aspect that, that you bring to the podcast today. So again, um, much success to you in the future. Um, I have a feeling it's going to continue because you've done so well so far with, with this research and um, take care. And again, next year we'll, we'll touch base again. And also if there's anything new that's coming down the pipe, you want to share with me, you can certainly 
uh, drop me an email, let me know. I'll be glad to look at it. And uh, maybe we'll have you on sooner than a year, depending on what, uh, what exciting information you're going to have for us in the future. Sounds good. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure talking to you and, and to your audience. Well, it was a pleasure uh, hearing about all the wonderful things that you and your colleagues are doing. And you have yourself a good rest of the day. You too, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you. Spectrum Ergonomics and Occupational Health Services provides a broad array of design and engineering professionals for your wearable project. We feature the following design specialties. Pattern making, digital textile, athletic wear, sensor, fashion, exoskeleton, robotics, and mechatronics. We also offer beta testing of your wearable in our private clinic. You choose the demographics and sample size, send us the sample, and we take care of the rest. For more information, go to www.spectrumergonomics.com for more information. Hey, if you're a startup wearable company and you'd like to be able to get your information on this podcast, please contact me at my company website, www.spectrumergonomics.com. I'd love to be able to feature a little bit about what you're doing to let the world know about your wearable. Well, thanks for joining me at the intersection of fashion and technology. And may you wear it well.